Will you join with me in prayer? Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for your word. God, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, your word might come alive to us today. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit and pray that we would be transformed by the knowledge of who you are and by the ways in which you work within us. So God, we offer ourselves to you and pray that your spirit would speak words of truth, that God, you would be our teacher, and God, that we would be open to what you would have for us this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray together, amen. Well, I'm not originally from Pennsylvania. When I moved from upstate New York to Reading, Pennsylvania to attend Albright College, I had never heard of Scrapple before. I thought that a large sandwich was a submarine. I'd not heard of a hoagie. And when my mother told me to clean up my room, she would always say, clean up your room. She never once ever said, red up your room. Also, when I would speak, I would routinely use the phrase to be. For example, I would say something like, my hair needs to be washed, not my hair needs washed. But after living about 40 years in Pennsylvania, I have to admit that there are times when I fail to use the phrase to be in my sentences. And not only do I know what Scrapple is, I have eaten Scrapple and enjoyed it. Don't judge me. In 40 years, my identity has been transformed from that of a New Yorker to that of a Pennsylvanian. Now, identity is what we're gonna focus on this morning as we continue in our sermon series on Holy Spirit power. Obviously, the source of the Holy Spirit is, and its power is that the Holy Spirit is God, and God is omnipotent, all-powerful. But how do we tap into that kind of power? Because we aren't God. Well, in Romans 8, Paul argues that we receive Holy Spirit power when we embrace our identity as children of God. When we receive the Holy Spirit and recognize that our identity is transformed from that of a slave to sin to that of an adopted child of God. Now, some of us are familiar with the long, complicated, costly process of adoption in our current culture. Parents go to great lengths to welcome a child into their family. But is so often the case, what adoption meant and how it worked and the process and the concept of adoption in biblical times is so incredibly different from how we experience adoption today. In Roman times, in biblical times, the family was organized around the pater familias, the head of the household. Pater means father. That's where we get our word paternal from. And familias, obviously, meaning family. So for the purposes of this morning, let's imagine that all of us worshiping together this morning are a large family or a household. And that Tom is our pater familias. Now, Tom is the chair of the lead council here at First Church. And Tom also has six children, so he seemed like a good choice for this role. As our pater familias, 
Tom would make all significant decisions involving our family, and he would own all the family property. None of you can own any property while Tom is still alive. If you want to get married, you have to ask Tom. If Tom thinks you ought to get married, he'll tell you. <laughs> also, if Tom thinks you ought to get divorced because the marriage is no longer working out, Tom can also tell you that. In Roman culture, everyone understood that everyone in the family had to do what the pater familias told them to do. His control was absolute. Now let's imagine that Tom is a wealthy pater familias and that Tom owns some slaves who are considered to be part of the familia. One of those slaves, let's imagine, is Dick. Dick is one of our online hosts. And Dick is fortunate because Tom is a kind owner. Treatments of slaves at that time varied widely. and it, um, Some were kind, some were not. But one thing was true is that slave, slaves were not racially or ethnically based, it, as it was in our history. Anyone could be a slave. But slaves were understood, like anywhere, that they were property, not people. So Dick, I am sorry to tell you that you are considered really nothing more than a talking tool. And your value is a little bit more than a cow. But slavery wasn't a lifetime status. Just because you were a slave doesn't mean you would always be a slave. Some slaves could become free. So let's imagine that Ron, another one of our online hosts, is one of Tom's former slaves. Although it was very difficult for slaves to meet all of the conditions required to be set free, Ron, being an industrious and skilled slave, was able to save up enough money to pay the amount that Tom originally paid for him and therefore to purchase his freedom. Slaves in this time weren't just manual labor. You could actually be quite skilled and be a slave. You could be a doctor, a teacher, an architect, a manager, and as someone who was skilled, you had the potential to generate income. But unfortunately for Ron, even after spending all of that income, working that hard to purchase his freedom, Tom still has some authority over him. And as a freed slave, Ron is certainly going to face significant discrimination as he tries to make his way in Roman society. He's no longer a slave, but he isn't really free. Not like Tom's daughters. Sandy is also one of our online hosts. Let's imagine that she was born into Tom's household. So she isn't a slave like Dick, but she has another problem. She's one of Tom's daughters, and her problem is she's female. Did you notice when Ray read the scripture this morning that it included the phrase adoption to sonship? Look at verse 15 again with me. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, what's going on here? Is Paul being sexist and leaving people like Sandy and me out of it? No. Paul knows how things worked 
in Roman culture. Females can't be a pater familias. Only males could lead the family. Only males could own property. In fact, even the children who were born to a woman, her own sons and daughters, were not subjected to her authority. Now that's a tough one for us modern, <laughs> because all authority rested with the pater familias. Remember, the Bible was originally written in a highly patriarchal culture, but the Bible isn't sexist. Think about Galatians. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And if you would interpret this verse in Romans 8 with adoption to sonship as limiting adoption to males, what do you do with all of the references in Scripture to the church being the bride of Christ? Is the church limited only to females? Of course not. Different metaphors are used throughout Scripture to capture the beautiful diversity of God's family. The Bible always needs to be studied through two lenses. First, the lens, what did the scripture mean in that particular culture to which it was written? And then secondly, what does the scripture mean to all people, including us? In the culture in which Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, females had significantly more limitations than they do today. So, if Tom doesn't have any sons to whom he can pass on the role of pater familias, he has to make arrangements for the care of his family and property. Tom needs an heir. And the only way to establish an heir if you have no biological sons is to adopt. Tom would likely adopt an adult male, perhaps someone like Jordan. Jordan is a member of our tech staff. Tom would not adopt a female. That would never happen because a female can't own property. And it would be too risky for Tom to adopt a child because many children didn't live into adulthood. And so a person like Jordan would be a good pick. And once Jordan was adopted, the connection between him and his original biological family would cease. And if Jordan had any debts, all of them would be paid by Tom, his pater familias. He would have the same status as if he were Tom's biological son. And when Tom died, everything he owned would be inherited by Jordan. And Jordan would become the pater familias. Once Jordan was adopted, this inheritance was secure and was permanent even if Tom lived many, many more years. So with this framework and this understanding of the culture in which Paul was writing when he wrote Romans 8, let's begin to look at what, is this, what does this mean? What does it mean for us? Because Dick isn't the only one of us living as a slave. In Romans 7, Paul writes that we have been sold as a slave to sin. We are not master of our own lives. Just as a slave has this external authority, the pater familias, controlling his or her life, we have an external authority, sin, controlling us. Can you relate to Paul's words? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing 
I hate. I think most of us, many of us, can relate to Ron's situation. Many of us live like we are a freed slave. Some of us are a slave to good enough. We try so hard to be good enough, to earn our identity as a free, loved child of God. And so we try to do the right thing, not mess up, hope that we have enough faith And yet we find that no matter how hard we work, how much we try, we keep living out that Romans 17, 7, 15 verse, and we do not do what I want, but do the very thing I hate. Those who live as freed slaves have a taste of Jesus. We're not slaves the way we used to be. We have some freedom, but our slavery to sin still haunts us. Others of us don't try to earn our identity, we try to create it. Our culture tells us that there is a unique person inside each of us. And if we would just be true to ourselves, if we would just work hard enough to remove the past messed up parenting that we received as a child, the disadvantages that we've had to come, the hurts and burdens that we've endured and discover the unique person inside of us and have a chance to live as that person with the perfect job and the perfect house and the perfect family and the perfect relationships and the perfect body, well, we would have a perfect life. But when we believe that our identity is inside of us, when we become a slave to whatever that perfect picture looks like, We are deeply in trouble. I know that's true because I've lived long enough to have lived through some of those created identities. When I was in my 20s, my identity was my profession. I was an academic nutritionist. I was Ivy League educated, very good at what I did. But I haven't worked in nutrition for more than 30 years. I can't remember half of what I used to know. And no one, including myself, would consider me a nutrition professional. That identity didn't last. And in my 30s and 40s, I lived into the identity of mom, a very important role. But now my three children are graduated married, independent. And that was the goal from the very beginning. And yet if my primary identity is that of mom and my kids are independent, that doesn't leave very much for me to do. Some people don't create their identity around a job or around a role. They create it around a a passion or a cause. It can be a very good cause, like protecting the environment. It can be a passion like being non-judgmental. That's a big one in our culture right now. But if my identity is that of an environmentalist, I'm gonna be ticked at you when I see you holding coffee in a styrofoam cup. And if your identity and you is around the passion of being non-judgmental and that's how you at your core see yourself, What are you going to do when you see me being judgmental against someone who's holding a styrofoam cup? 
How do you reconcile that? When we try to earn or when we try to create our own identity, we get into all kinds of trouble. As Tim Keller says, any identity that is achieved rather than received separates us from others. When we try to earn our identity through our performance, in our job, in our home, in our relationships, even within our body, we inevitably find ourselves comparing ourselves to others. And other people become competitors instead of companions. C.S. Lewis wrote, We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else becomes equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. When we take pleasure in being above the rest, we are in very dangerous territory because eventually we're going to be disappointed. Our 15 likes on our Facebook posts feel good until we look at somebody else who has 56 likes. Our vacation in Ocean City, Maryland seemed great until our neighbor told us that they took their vacation in Disney World. And when our identity is achieved, rather than received, we will always have to compare ourselves to others and we become a slave. When we make anything other than our life in God, our identity, it will ultimately crush us because nothing is strong enough to serve as the foundation of your life than your identity as a child of God. Nothing is long lasting enough to serve as the foundation of your life than your identity as a child of God. We can't create our own identity because we need someone from outside to tell us who we are. Let me say that again because it's really important. We need someone from outside of us to tell us who we are. I bet some of you don't think that that is true. So let me ask you a question. Be really, really honest with yourself. Do you ever doubt that who you are is enough? Do you ever worry that, you know, while I may be on the top of my game today, that identity that you've built may turn out to be more like a house of cards that falls apart with the slightest pressure. That's what it feels like to have an identity that is earned or created because it's only as good as your last win. It's only as good as you are. You become a slave to it. So how do we get our achieved identity, set that down and receive and embrace our identity in Christ? If you want to be secure in your identity, if you want to feel confident that we are loved even when we mess up, if you want an unshakable assurance that we are valued for who we are and not for what we do, we need the esteem of someone we esteem to have self-esteem. We need the esteem of someone we esteem to have self-esteem. And that is the gospel. 
That's the gospel message. The gospel says you are esteemed beyond measure, that you are more valuable than the incredibly beautiful creation that's all around you. The gospel says that the one who esteems you is almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, the all-powerful one who speaks and the mountains tremble, and that nothing will ever snatch you away from the hand of Christ who died for you, and through that act of salvation, the sin and death were conquered. You were a slave, and Christ didn't just buy your freedom. The Holy Spirit brought about your adoption. You joined a new family. You have a new identity, and all your previous debts were canceled. Your pater familias is none other than God the Father. Do you see the incredible difference that it makes to have an identity as an adopted child of God rather than a slave of sin? It's the Holy Spirit who brought about your adoption, who welcomed you to the family where God is the Father. You don't have to obey the Father because you're afraid of how you might be punished. You don't have to live in a perpetual state of insecurity like a slave does, worrying that you might be beaten if you don't do everything exactly right. You are not a talking tool valued for what you can do. You don't have to perform to be accepted. You don't have to earn your freedom. Adoption is a gift from the Father. You are a beloved child of God. You are invited to serve out of love, not out of compulsion. Because the Holy Spirit, you don't have to keep your distance from the Father. The Father is no longer inaccessible. God is no longer so holy and separate that we can't even look upon the Father, that we need a curtain to separate us. God also is not so theological and intellectual that we can't even come close. He's not just someone we study. He's a father into whose lap we crawl. Through the Holy Spirit, God is a person we experience, someone to whom we cry out, Abba, when we need our father. Because the Holy Spirit testifies, they are indeed. This one is your child. Abba is a term of closeness and familiarity, a term that is often translated daddy, a word that Jesus used when he prayed to the Father. And then finally, as adopted children of the ultimate pater familias, we have an extraordinary inheritance. Look at verse 17. Now, if we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I don't often think about the inheritance that I've received the inheritance of those who fought for freedom in our country so that we can live in peace, the inheritance of those who came before me and built this church, the inheritance of good parents who loved me as a child. Can we even fathom what it means to be heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ? of God, the creator of all things, and Christ who holds all things together, Christ who said, all that belongs to the Father is mine. What is this inheritance? Well, it is nothing less than the new creation. Nothing less than the holy city where God wipes every tear from our eyes, where death is no more, where mourning and crying and pain have passed away and where all things are made new and God dwells with his people. This inheritance was guaranteed 
when Jesus conquered sin and death on Easter morning. But just like the adopted son who has this guaranteed inheritance, which has not yet received, we haven't yet received our full adoption and guaranteed inheritance. We have the spirit of adoption, but we live in an in-between time often called already not yet. Christ has already won the victory of sin and death, but that victory is not yet fully realized in our world. And so in this already not yet world, we share Christ's sufferings in order that we may also share his glory. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And while Christ is the one who makes adoption possible, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it real in the lives of believers. I want to invite you to make it real by tapping into Holy Spirit power and claiming your identity as an adopted child of God, not a slave to sin. Philip Yancey says that if I could sum up the whole Bible in one statement, it would be this. God gets his family back. The whole Bible is about God going after his children. I believe that God is going after you as one of his precious children. Why else would you be joining in worship this morning? If you have been baptized, you have received the spirit of adoption. Water was placed on your head and a pastor prayed that God would pour out the Holy Spirit to bless this gift of water and the one who receives it to wash away their sin, clothe them in righteousness throughout their lives, that dying and being raised with Christ, they may share in his final victory. If you haven't been baptized and wish to receive this gift, contact the church office. One of the staff would love to talk with you about baptism. As we close, I want to offer you a blessing. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit power as you live into your privileged identity as an adopted child of God. May you live with assurance, not fear. May you experience God as Abba, Daddy, not taskmaster or unapproachable authority figure. May you find your security in who you are, not in what you are able to do. And when you experience suffering, as all of us do, May you find comfort in the promise that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And may you hold on to hope that your inheritance is far more glorious than you can even imagine and is being kept safe for those who have a spirit of adoption. Amen.